All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. A brief overview of this evening's episode is going to include the intros and hellos, followed by a triple junction and new news. And then our main discussion is really going to continue along with last week's episode, and we'll dive deep into all things estuaries since we didn't get to it last time. And joining us again this week is the one and only Dr. Angela Osen. Between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another Mineral Minute. And lastly, before signing off we'll close things out with another that freaking rocks again a big thank you to all our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs both to our new listeners and to our returning listeners (laughs) i always screw up listeners alike for spending your time with us each week if you'd like to reach out to us whether it be for episode ideas queries you were wanting resolved or just want to tell us about all the times we were wrong you can reach out to us at geologyotr at gmail.com or you can find us on instagram at geology on the rocks podcast so it most certainly looks like things are squared away over here. So without further ado to all of you over there, I am your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggins. And this is Geology, Geology on, on the, the Rocks. rocks. So, <laughs> so much easier. It is way easier. And well, then, well, welcome back everyone to another week. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Angela, to continue the discussion of estuaries. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. It's always a pleasure. So how was everyone's week? There's <laughs> <laughs> there has been sun. It's been very yeah. nice. I've enjoyed it. Oh, it, it felt like spring today. So I was at the park uh, with my kids earlier today and we were just laying down and there's that, there was something reminiscent of the spring. And I was like, oh man, I cannot I wait. Cannot like, wait. Don't fail us now. No, don't. <laughs> Anything new happening with you, Angela? No, I, I recently adopted a rescue. Yeah. Dog. Oh, nice. It is a little under two years old. So we're getting to know each other and it's been fun. But she's a real sweetie and she's a... Uh, watching me intently so hopefully <laughs> no sometimes sometimes my dog will bark and brian will be like was that was that what was that <laughs> you make pretend so brian how was your week how's your study going um study is wrapping up so uh found some more evidence of i'm gonna use a cool word consanguineous origin for the two outcrops that i'm studying basically it's looking like this is gonna be a good place to do age dating so we're okay. gonna hop in on that next. I'm wrapping up reports and stuff. I showed you my madness of spreadsheet yeah, no, earlier. <laughs> this is like, ridiculous. What, what is that? I just see yeah. a whole bunch of dots on a spreadsheet. Um, other than that, started pretty much started the final takes for the new album coming yeah. out guitar wise. So excited about that. Well, most excellent. Yeah. yeah. And I just wanted to point out that we are drinking whiskey literally on the rocks. Yeah, we are. So Angelo, so for Valentine's Day, my present was I got this whiskey. Kit, or it, it came with a decanter and two drinks and then these polished granite cubes. Looks like it's a Ooh. quartz monzo granite. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you say. Uh, <laughs> and then and then I etched uh just our logo onto the the decanter and drink. So we're we're so the name of the the podcast is Geology on the Rocks and we're we're drinking whiskey on Geology Rocks. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Uh, all right. Well cheers. 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 Uh and to you, uh, Angela, for being our guest. All right, so let's, I guess, we could move it on to the Triple Junction. So this is where we do the fanfare feedback and follow-up. This week, we had an email from Colin in Michigan, and he was wondering if we could do an episode about rocks and minerals you would typically find around groundwater and freshwater uh, up in Michigan. And I just wanted to let you know that we will check out your band. So I think we talked about doing it next season is actually reviewing some music, maybe. And he said it was math rock, so that should be good. Cool. Yeah, Yeah, 
Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Then I also have a special shout out this week for a beautiful man that goes by the name of Kevin from Texas and also one Mr. Guy and Miss Trish and their brand new babies. So they just Ooh. had, he's the, the other guitar in our band. He had a, oh, a baby. So gotcha. Okay. Fun. And then let's see feedback. We also got a question this week, Brian. So <laughs> maybe you can help us out with this, Angela. So this comes from one of my students and they asked, why does salinity increase in colder waters and decrease in lower latitudes? And I'm assuming this is with regards to the ocean. So that, that's an interesting and somewhat complicated <laughs> question. <laughs> but I, I'll try to answer it the best that I can. A lot of this has to do with not only the temperature, but the circulation within the ocean itself. Yes. So the colder waters tend to be saline because near the poles, the water's cold from the surface to the bottom, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the density change you're going to see in those colder waters is due to the, mostly due to the addition of salinity. And that's what drives that thermal hailing circulation, right? Yes. And so those cold bottom waters will travel from the poles down towards the equator and kind of rotate back. You know how complicated that, that system is, but it, yes. it works great. But in the equator, we tend to have more, or in those lower latitudes, we tend to have the evaporation that we have warmer water. So this, the salt is still going to add to the density, but you have a combination of that water coming down from the poles that's salty that's staying down towards the bottom. And so our upper waters in the equator, we tend to see some salinity that's staying on the surface because the warmer water can accommodate that, that colder, saltier water that originated from in the higher latitudes still stays at the bottom rather than those two mixing right away. Yeah. Is that? I, yeah. I, I so, think, I think that answer it's too. Yeah. I mean, like it's, 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 it's hard to get into just like a little bitty tiny. I mean, like there's, there's like, we lead up to it. We don't just like jump into yeah. it. Like there's a lot that goes right with like the picnocline and then the thermocline. Cause right. Then right. also because like at the mid latitudes, right. That's where you get the, I guess that, that super increase in salinity, but then it decreases. Cause you have at least at, cause I know we've talked a little bit about before too, Brian, that at the equator, you have a lot more runoff cause it's a lot rainier too. Right. Yeah. I mean, that has to, it goes exactly. which I was going to interject and say that's, that's a big part of it too. You know, near the equator, especially the, you know, five degrees to zero degrees north or south of the equator, that's, that's a major rain belt. It rains all the time. So <laughs> yeah. that, that also lowers the salinity, even though the heat is helping with the evaporation. There's just so much fresh water entering that area. So that also accounts for that. But, you know, the salinity is, is tricky. You can't just say all upper latitudes are going to be saltier and the lower latitudes are going to be fresher because it's not necessarily the case, especially when we see that ice melt. So it all depends. Are you talking about surface waters? Are you talking about an average or the bottom waters? Because as we know, that can vary. We have a decline. And so it's hard to just kind of basically say, well, this is what it is. But the general rule is that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> paint with broad <laughs> brushes, but answer specifically, like with little fine brushes. No, I understand that. It, it, it's I think it's fascinating, and but yeah. like the uh, and then there's all the the different the mixing too, because you have that deep ocean water, right? And then you have I don't know, it's 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 all fascinating. And then based on the temperature and salinities, right, you can plot it and you know kind of where that water is coming from too, right? Yeah, no, that's that's what's really fascinating, with, especially with those deep waters, is you can track how they move based on their temperature and salinity profile. So we know when we're measuring the salinity and temperature of, of a current, say the flowing, even if it's a small current, based on that profile, we can determine its origin. 
So we know it came from the Arctic or the Antarctic oh, okay. um, Mediterranean, which is really an interesting profile as well. Yeah, and then what I what I find all fascinating, and, and you can we can see this happening too, like the where it's at the surface and it goes down and mixes. I know I, I, you may or may not remember, but I, but when we talk about ocean circulations, I showed you this kind of like a case study that they used with the CFCs that we know that they were up in the atmosphere, right? But then the the government they banned them, so then it decreased in the atmosphere. But then we could. They they were testing the the, the CFCs because it's soluble in water, and then they can see this distribution of it to where the concentrations are kind of fanning out from the Arctic down, and it's mm. you know it's it's at about where it should be at 50 years, so it's only X amount before it starts. I don't know. Wow. Well, thank you for that question. It, but it's yeah, it's going <laughs> to uh, play kind of into the bigger picture here. So I mean, this is why I picked this one because it, it it really goes into our conversation that we're going to have tonight. Yeah. But before we get to that, a little new news, shall we? Yeah. So. I didn't have a really nerdy zoological or geological story, but um, I did want to bring out that our governor has now lifted the mask mandate. Oh. And things are opened at 100%. And so after a few conversations about this today, I felt the need to talk about how asinine <laughs> that is, at least in my head. Masks do work. They've done various studies well before the coronavirus or COVID-19 was a thing. The one that I was looking at earlier was a Duke University. I think it was like 2017 or 2018. And they showed that they showed the different types of masks from cloth to like the ugly blue ones that I yeah. wear to whatever. And the it was exponential in the reduction of shedding the virus through the mask. So it's like, you're not, yeah. I, I don't understand for me why it's so offensive to wear a mask to save someone else's life. So I, so, I mean, to me, pardon my French, so I think it's complete dumb fuckery. <laughs> like, so why, I don't understand, I, I feel like it's a diversion tactic from kind of the the ERCOT and all of oh, that. Right, yeah. But I feel like, why didn't they use this opportunity to say, hey, let's, hey, if we're at 60%, we're going to open up these businesses, and then when we're at 75%, then we can, you know, do this, and then, you know, whatever we're trying to get to, like 80%, then, like, hey, yeah. let's roll it back. Or if we're doing better, like, hey, you know, good job, Texas, let's continue to do that. Like, stay strong. Let's hold this out. Get your vaccines. Keep your masks on. Like, it's it's easy. I don't um, know. But I, I, I agree. All, you know, all the way. And, and I, I find it quite interesting the fact that uh, official spring break season opens up. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> uh, weekend uh, after the state mandate is lifted. So to me, oh. it's money, money, money. Yeah. Oh, um, you're so right. Because, you know, people are protected. That less than eight percent of the state is is vaccinated, and our first responders and our essential workers, our restaurant workers, all those people that don't have a choice that can't stay home and work are now going to be exposed. They're going to have to deal with these rude anti-maskers. I just it it, it yeah. hurts my <laughs> ever living little brain. Yeah. Whatever, however, just, I'm like, why, why, yeah. why do we have to do this, man, <laughs> man, oh man. So yeah, that, we should get personally politicians. Yeah. I think that's the way they're going to look. You know, so frustrating. So frustrating. I think it's, I think it's frustrating, frustrating as well. Well, um, my news article kind of is a little different, but I like, 
So I, I, it's the, the title is Sleep and the Lunar Cycle. So uh, a, a new study led by the University of Washington shows a clear synchronization of nocturnal sleep timing with lunar cycles in the participants living in environments that range from um, really this rural setting with, I guess, not real access to electricity in indigenous communities in northern Argentina to Seattle, which is a highly urbanized post-industrial setting in the United States. So anyways, the study, it, it demonstrated a clear lunar modulation of sleep with sleep decreasing and a later onset of sleep in the day preceding a full moon. Hmm. So that's pretty, pretty neat. So I believe the effect was more robust in communities without access to electricity. However, the, the effect was also present in communities with electricity. So there's, uh, it didn't really matter. So using wrist monitors, professors de la Iglesia and colleagues track sleep patterns among 98 individuals living in three cities in Tobacom indigenous communities in the Argentina province province of Formosa. Anyways, these communities, they, they differed in their access to electricity during the study period. One rural community had no electricity. A second had limited access, while the third had um, an urban setting and had full access. Depending on the community, the total amount of sleep varied across the lunar cycle by an average of 46 to 58 minutes and bedtime seesawed around 30 minutes. So for all three communities on average, people had the, the, the latest bedtimes and the shortest amount of sleep in the nights three to five days leading up to a full moon. Yeah. So then the, when the researchers, they, they discovered this pattern among the Toba participants, they analyzed sleep monitor data from 464 Seattle area college students that had been collected for a separate study, and they found the same oscillations. Wow. So the, I guess they, they hypothesized that the patterns observed are an innate adaptation that allowed our ancestors to take full advantage of this natural source of eating light that occurred at a specific time during the lunar cycle. Yeah. So that, that's pretty neat. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. Oh. Make use of the light. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I don't, it's like <laughs> even something as subtle as moonlight, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that. It's like you, I don't, I'd, I wouldn't even think to think of a, <laughs> like a scientific question to ask, like, how does the moon influence our sleep patterns? Apparently, it influences everything here. So, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. I'm born light. Right, full moon's coming out, so you can spend a little more time in the evening chatting. Yeah, yeah. Happens, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it blows my mind, right? And then I guess sometimes it recharges like crystals, and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, all right, well, I guess it's on to episode twenty-two. We go, and again, we're excited to have with us Dr. Angela Osen. So, the real the, the characteristics of coastal waters is going to include salinity, temperature variations, just from that interface of fresh water and the ocean water. So let me start off with a few questions and, and then we can think about coastal oceans where deep mixing does not occur. So how can, do we think that we can best describe the effect that offshore winds and freshwater runoff have on salinity distributions? I know we kind of started that discussion at the top, right? So when, yeah. I guess... Well, do you want me to jump into on that question? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this, let's just, we can just have it more of a discussion and we'll see where it goes from there. All right. Well, you know, offshore winds and of course freshwater runoff are going to be important on salinity distributions. Let's start with offshore winds. So yeah. the winds are going to move those surface waters and whatever's contained in those surface waters. So if you have offshore winds that are blowing from the continent onto the ocean, it's going to help push that water farther out into the ocean, to it, depending on how strong that wind is. So, yeah. you know, usually we don't talk about any more than 100 meters in depth. 
course, mm. that's where it's not talking about that deep anyway. So that's going to influence the salinity as it helps push any going to the freshwater runoff. Freshwater runoff is going to help move that out towards the ocean. It's also going to influence that mixing. So with the, the offshore winds, that creates waves, which is going to increase the mixing of the fresh and the salt water in, in those salinity, in those estuaries. So with that freshwater runoff, of course, if we didn't have the winds, then that freshwater, if we don't have waves and circulation moving in and out, is going to bunch up near that coastline, near that shore. Yeah. So you end up with brackish conditions. Yeah, and then I think that's really cool. Those the just the alone the pictures of that that interface of you know sometimes where you see the the Mississippi River going into the Gulf of Mexico or you see it you know the freshwater going into the saltwater is pretty cool. So we can yeah. see that there is that 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 mixing. So I don't know. So hopefully everyone is already kind of familiar. I know you talked about the, the we talked about the salinity and if not so the the freshwater is less dense than seawater. So it's going to have this tendency to I guess be above. It, mm-hmm. it, it's not really going to mix that well. So river runoff does not mix well with the seawater along the coast and instead the freshwater forms, I guess in wedges at the at the surface and it creates a well-developed, I guess I guess the halo climb, right? Is that uh, it's which is uh, the halo is just salt and climb is a slope, is a layer of rapidly changing salinity. Right, right. And the, right. Oh, oh, no, I refer to drastic change in density due to salinity in specifically. One thing that's really neat, there is a estuary in British Columbia. I'm not exactly sure but there's pictures I know of the internet where you can actually see that interface between the freshwater and the ocean water. Uh-huh. Um, the freshwater being having some sediment in it, so it tends to have a bit of a beige to brown tint, and that ocean water is very blue, and you can see that halo pond, very definite definition, mm. um, two different densities meet. I was down in Dominican Republic one time, and they were talking about the meeting of the waters, and so they had like the freshwater runoff area, but the Caribbean, where it met the Atlantic... Is that all also, is that mainly, is there a salinity difference between the two or is that just derived from current alone? I would bet it would have something to do with salinity. So if you're close to a coastal area and you have freshwater entering, you're probably going to have a pretty strong halo climb unless there's an exceptional amount of wave activity that can mix it right away. Mm. Now, that's not a visual, visible, you know, but sometimes it can be. Like in the case of British Columbia, you have the sediments that are mixed in with that freshwater, so it makes that halo climb really visible. So I bet when they talk about the meaning of the water, that, that's probably what they're talking about is that natural halo climb that will form so that water can get well mixed so and, and then is i i don't know so when we think of the the saragossa sea is that kind of is that by the caribbean because i know that one's that one creates this kind of uh own little sea and that's bounded by currents it's kind of like one of the weird things with oh, the weird caribbean's an interesting um case study because the caribbean sea itself is, is actually shallow. It's actually kind of close to the Mediterranean Sea in the sense that there's kind of the fill or those those islands that surround it, kind of elevate it and separate that circulation directly with the Atlantic Ocean. So the, those waters actually end up having two different profiles. Yeah. Now there's still the mixing that goes on, but it's limited because of the obstruction of the islands and kind of a fill buildup. And again, the, the Caribbean Sea itself is more shallow than the Atlantic Ocean. So that that is an interesting setup there. So we're going to talk about some, some other processes. So they can create strong halo clines in coastal areas as well. For example, yeah. prevailing offshore winds <laughs> that we talked about, but they can increase the salinity in coastal regions through evaporation. I think 
take freshwater runoff from, I guess, continents too. It's it's stuff, but it yeah. lowers the salinity of coastal regions compared to open oceans as well. So, and then also there where there's precipitation on land, it's mostly rain and river runoff peaks in the rainy season, right? So, I guess I guess that's really leads us into the the next question. So, yeah. <laughs> let's let's go. Um, so, I, I guess how does will the winter and summer seasons affect the temperature distribution in the water column? Yeah, I mean. That is a good question, um, it, and it, it does because in well, let's take uh, let's take the Mississippi for example. Okay. So Mississippi is fed in by a lot of smaller rivers, right? Uh-huh. Uh, many rivers run into the Mississippi. We have that large drainage basin. So as we know, we that area gets a lot of snow, right? We're talking midwestern regions all drain into the Mississippi. When we have that spring runoff and the Mississippi floods, which it does not all the time, but it has some, you have an exceptional amount of fresh water that, that's entering the, the gulf at that time. So that's going to not only influence the temperature because you have that, that cold spring runoff water entering the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico is, is relatively warm comparable to other areas, but then you have an inundation of fresh water in an area that has higher salinity. So it lowers that salinity of that particular region. If organisms in that area can't cope with that change, they're going to run into problems. So Mm -hmm. what we'll see is more stratification of the water as we have that fresh water, a bunch of the fresh water, it's going to float on the top longer and reach out farther, whereas the bottom waters are going to stay a bit on the saltier side until those can get mixed up. So yeah, we definitely do that. And of course, in the wintertime, that usually means our water is not running off, right? Because it's locked up in the snow and ice. So in that case, we can end up with a, a higher salinity content in those runoff areas. Again, life has to be able to cope with that. And many organisms that set up in that area are able to tolerate those changes. But when we have the drastic floods, it can influence the ecosystem in that area. How does coastal runoff of low salinity water produce a coastal geostrophic current? And are there any specific locations where coastal geostrophic currents can be found? Oh, another good question. (laughs) So one that comes in mind is uh, the Davidson Current. I think that's a a really cool one. It is a really cool one. That that one's Washington, Oregon, and parts of California, I do believe. Uh And it actually runs counter to um, to the California current, which is you know famous and quite strong current. So that California current is moving colder water down the the western coast of North America on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But do you believe during the winter time, like starting in November, the Davidson current, which is due to runoff mostly, I want to say from the Columbia River that's entering that area, mm-hmm. will actually set up the countercurrent because we have not only a temperature differential in the water, but also a bit of a salinity differential. And this aided also by the winter storm pattern. So that that's a big influence on setting up that Davidson current is we have kind of a, a change in those weather patterns from that nice, calm summer to more robust 
winter storms that start moving across the area, which influences which direction that water. Yeah, it's flowing. kind of like what we, we 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 talked about that last last time, right? I do know. So when we think of geostrophic currents, the geo Earth strophia means turn. So the currents move in a circular path around the middle of the the gyrate. So what you were saying with the wind, so it it pushes that I guess water against the shore, and then it kind of like it when it falls back, right? With due to gravity, it kind of with the Coriolis effect has a little bit to do with it too. So it deflects it off to the right in the northern hemisphere, like right, so right. That, and then that's part of it, and it causes it to curve to the right. Um, when we think of geostrophic currents, like so in I guess on the west coast of the continents in the northern hemisphere. So we'll just talk about North America since that's where we're situated. So in the North America, the geostrophic currents on the west coast flow northward, and then the geostrophic currents on the southern hemisphere, I mean, on the east coast, <laughs> like they flow south, right? Am I crazy to think that? Well, it, it depends on your dominant wind direction. So speaking of North North America, we're dominated by those westerly winds. Okay. So that, that would be correct because as the wind is coming from the west, it's going to be diverted to the right due to the Ekman transport. So that's, that's going to help steer those currents. Yeah. So in the wintertime, yeah, our storms are coming usually northwest, coming from uh, the Arctic and then getting pushed west. So that combination helps turn, or the cordial helps those yeah. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. And then I and I know with at least a little bit about the the geostrophic currents. They like they're they're variable because they depend on that wind and then the amount of runoff for their strength. So if, if the wind is strong and the volume of the runoff is high, then the currents are going to be relatively strong, like we see with the Davidson current. How it sets up. I mean, I, it's it's kind of there all the time, but it, it really uh, really gets going in the I guess more I guess you know the 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 winter time when you start having the the high winds coming off and you have a little bit of the melt coming down as well so that's, right yeah okay well i guess it goes down a little bit lower i want to say it gets, you know it is it's not visible at the surface because it's so weak it sinks down yeah yeah but then like like you said whenever you have more runoff it's going to push out further and then it causes that whole yeah I get it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's all so like, there's so much to know. I mean, like to, you yeah. know what I'm saying? It's always, there's always so much that we could get into all these long, super discussions and, and I still don't feel like I'll ever know enough of it, but okay. So that's kind of the, the interfaces. So let's get on to the main thing, estuaries. Like, so we, we promise the listeners we'll get to estuaries. So to begin, I say, let's start with a working definition of what an estuary is, because this is the point of confusion. Fusion, at least for me. So according to NOAA, which is the National Oceanic Atmosphere Association, no, not association. Agency? Agency? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Am I? What? It's one of those. What's the last day? Agency? Administration. Administration. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Administration. All right. According to them, the estuaries are coastal bodies of water with fresh water from land sources, such as rivers and salty seawater mix. Estuaries have a barrier to the sea, similar to lagoons that protect them from ocean energy. But unlike lagoons, estuaries will connect with the sea and because of this connection with the sea estuaries can be strongly influenced by tides so here we go we're going to add in <laughs> another kind of uh, uh this thing these tidal bulges right <laughs> yeah and so the tidal changes along with seasonal changes in rainfall cause estuarine environmental conditions so like water height and salinity they'll they'll fluctuate pretty prominently throughout those seasons yeah so. and then so um we're going to we're going to defer to you Angela like you 
<laughs> like again, like I, I feel like whenever I think of estuaries, you you explained it kind of nicely with the kind of what we think of them as kind of habitats and wetlands kind of versus like this different thing. Uh, you can probably articulate it a little bit better than either Brian Brian or I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, I, I think the confusion that stems with the word estuaries is, is when we're presented with estuaries, whether it's you know on a TV program or the media, often we tend to associate that with a vision of wetlands. Because yeah. a protected estuaries, and they talk about the birds and the, and the plants and the habitat, but that's not necessarily the case. But as the, the NOAA definition plan, uh, points out, it, it deals with freshwater, where freshwater is coming in to that coastal area that's slightly isolated. So we have estuaries in Norway, which is not, not something that we would normally think of. I know when, even now, when I hear estuaries, my first thought is uh, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's anywhere with fresh water, so the Chesapeake Bay, Delaware Bay, those are estuaries as well, but that's not what we normally think about. So, yeah, it's anywhere that is slightly isolated, so any harbor or bay would be considered an estuary under that NOAA definition. And then I, I, they're, they're really this unique environment that makes them this kind of uh, busy location for humans and animal interaction too. I know when you said that they're kind of like this wetland type, but humans benefit they from the beauty of estuaries and they're used for food and resources that they provide and they make great tourist attractions, harbors and ports. I know I've been to what the, the Chesapeake Bay and it's it's quite, I mean, I think it's quite remarkable. And then it's just that, that mix of fresh water and salt water, right, is kind Kind of is what's making it this great feeding ground and habitat for many types of wildlife. Yeah, and um, so they they'll have the sediment input from both the upstream rivers from the ocean, and most of it's really fine grained. So like your silts and muds and that type of sediment and the abundance of it affects human and animal involvement with estuaries. Too much, it's going to make it hard for the plants to photosynthesize and it it's going to limit the human use for like boats and all that kind of stuff to go through. So they lowers the total depth of the water at that area so you don't have room for barges and like other deep ships to come through yeah and then so i i want to say that i did read like uh so like the where the um one of the first settlements of america was on an estuary it's where that interface is right because i mean because it's really going to be it makes sense right that it would be kind of its little inlet but so Man, there's cause there's so much like I'm getting all in mix together. So how about we talk about the the four main types of estuaries based on geologic origin? But I call dibs on fjords. Okay. Well, I'll go with the uh, coastal plain estuaries. Okay. Um, and so they form from a rising sea level, which fills an already existing river valley with water. And so that'll create that estuary brackish condition there. Okay. And then everyone, I have. Ah. Stories by James. <laughs> so I, I, I have a poem. Okay. All right. This one's called Norwegian Ford. Frosted in snow, gouged by ridges and crevices, steep sentinels of time, tall giants acre deep in its sea, warmed by kinder sun as days extend. They shed their winter cloak, rushing waterfalls from heights on high. Simple homesteads perched on ledges, steep paths above cold waters. Historic remnants, they housed rugged folk, those who dared to live and love within the soul of Norway's fjords. Who is that? I don't I, I just, <laughs> I don't know. It's just called, I, it was a poem. It's that pretty. I, yeah. So yeah. that's, so fjords. These are, these are, they're, they're, they're valleys that were at one time carved out by glaciers and then were filled with water, right? So they're, they're kind of 
of like gouged out right by the glaciers and then the glaciers melt you have these steep sides like they're they're they're, they're really 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 deep sort of estuaries yeah. if i'm not mistaken i forgot what those are those like they're not potanaster lakes they're um oh no that's from well that's like the glacial lakes right so they but they have these chain lakes that can go out to meet the sea you know what yeah. i'm talking about i was just wondering if that's like in the same <laughs> they're all glacier created so you certainly could have a chain of glacial lake leading up to the fjord so yeah. the the big distinction would be the fjord is actually connected with with the ocean itself whereas the lake would not so that's on my bucket list I have yeah. not visited Florida and I definitely want to go see one of those. Yeah, no, I want to go to Norway. And I think on my other, my, I think my big one is to, well, let's just, let's just stop and have a, a sidebar real quick. So what is on your geological bucket list? Mine is to go to Iceland and I want to be on the North American yeah. plate and the, the Eurasian plate yeah. at the same time. And then lastly, my dying wish is to be, I could be cremated or I don't have to be, but I want whoever I am survived by i want them to throw me into a volcano <laughs> that way that way i can be recrystallized into a rock and then oh, hopefully cool. i can be end up in a classroom as uh, as any kind of rocks so. yeah that's awesome I like that. yeah yeah all right so well, uh angela what is your I, bucket list uh, well i'm iceland's on my bucket list and so is new zealand so oh. i am uh, uh, those, that that was mine but it's just so pretty it's beautiful and <laughs> Just by nature here. Yeah. <laughs> is New Zealand part of new that new hypothesized continent? Yeah. Zeal- like Zealandia? That. Yeah. That's I think so. Because oh, yeah. it's on that, it's on a different plate than Australia, right? right. There's that sub, that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. yeah I would like to go there because that's Middle Earth on earth <laughs> um, i would think you know i would really like to see some of what they call like the underwater lakes which maybe that kind of ties into with what we're talking about like is it a salinity difference oh my goodness that's one of my f- most favorite things yeah it looks so cool and you can even see it speaking of brackish conditions in tulum in mexico so they have the cenotes cenotes which are like these cave filled or they're the river filled caves okay and so it's yeah. really pristine beautiful clear water i've uh snorkeled through them and i mean you can see 150 feet down like you're just looking brian brags i can actually this could be a story time by brian. <laughs> no it, i'm just saying like you bragged like i snorkeled through them well i did and <laughs> and i saw this like like dark crevice like 100 something feet down and then like this enormous catfish just comes from the deep like nope. out of this and nope. i'm like i was like oh my god like something way worse is about to come out of there i don't know what it is but it was awesome i didn't get to see the condition that i'm gonna describe but i remember watching i guess it was nat geo or maybe it was planet i don't know what it was deep planet. blue yeah and it showed like you could see it looked like you were about to be above water surface and so it was like really like this illusion but you're really just entering fresher water where the salt water was below i guess no so like what's yeah. what's going on is the when you have the methane exploding like it, it the, a byproduct that brine so it's super oh, salt okay. so it's Brian-y water. Brian-y like, water. Right, so then it fills in those low pre- those low zones and then it, so you actually have like lakes under under the ocean. Oh yeah, that, yeah. Oh, is that not what you're talking no, about? No, like this oh, okay. is actually where like the the seawater was coming in. Like it, it would, it was, that was the mixing point okay. between. So maybe, is that an estuary there in the cenotes, technically? Oh. Well, that's oh. a good question because it's in Cave, but it's attached to the ocean. I guess technically that would be an estuary, uh, but I think it has changed, which escapes me at the moment. Yeah, 
it was it was really cool to watch that i but it was really disorienting because you the diver you could see like through his eyes and you just see this like oh you're about to be on top of the water surface just kidding right. like you're yeah. in another it's column not, of water oh wow well. is that the one that poison is I, I remember watching the show and i don't remember where it might have been Nat geo but with some of those caves the water is actually poisonous so they have to be very careful with how long they actually spend in that off layer um i'm not sure but i hope that i guess i made it out of there so i don't know <laughs> is it is it because it like becomes cyanide don't 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 they see that kind of in the the chesapeake bay in some areas or no there's a lake right up in is it new york I, there's something that we do that we watch God, it escapes yeah. my mind. yeah i think i think you're right i think it is a, i think it is actually a lake so and, um, and it creates like this cyanide wow. kind of uh and yeah then, oh that is with oh who is it with one of the british scientists. like attenborough right david, david yeah yeah. Uh, what is that? I can't, but I can't think. But it's, but it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Like this. It, oh, go ahead. Oh, what is this? I can't think of his name. Ian something. He he narrates Ian some Malcolm. of those. But yeah, the BBC's oh Earth biography. That's what it's from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, there's there's so much see, like there we could go either way. So yeah. let's see. Then what the other types where there's the bar built estuary, which the the bar built estuaries are behind some sort of natural bar between the estuary and the ocean, such like as a the, spit or oh, a lagoon. Yeah, yeah. Like a, and they have those like breaks, I guess. Yeah, in them. yeah. Are those t called tidal inlets? Is that the same thing, or is that a different? I don't well, know. That would be part of it. So you can okay. have a tidal inlet into the estuary or the lagoon area yeah because there's there's different i think the, the different parts of it and then i guess lastly the there's here how about you talk you want to you talk about yeah that? yeah okay, you go for it more rock talk tectonic estuaries so they occur on faults and that's where like the tectonic activity is it's going to create a space that can be filled in with the water san francisco that bay is an example of a tectonic estuary and then i'm not even to get into it I, I wrote a lot down about it but we can see estuaries under glaciers where some subaerial streams enter the sea from waterfalls over the rocky coast with essentially no marine influence inland blah 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 but there are just to keep in mind and to keep the the flow of it going i'm not going to stop us down for <laughs> kind of a, a little bit but we do know glaciers are made of ice and we do know ice is a mineral so i think that's a good segue into mineral mineral minutes mineral <laughs> mineral mineral minutes mm. minerals <laughs> Okay, so today's Mineral Minute is brought to you by the lead fluoride, fluorochronite. Fluorochronite's chemical formula is PBF2. Chemical. <laughs> chemical. Chemical. And fluorochronite is a white in color and has curly luster. Fluorochronite streaks white and has a hardness between three and four. Fluorochronite's type locality is from Kupel, <laughs> no, silver tin deposit. Sarikev Range, Sakha Republic, Russia. It's from Russia. It's from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah. Fluorochronite belongs to the fluorite mineral group and has perfect cleavage on the 111 plane. Yes, and fluorochronite's crystal system is isometric and is part of the M3M hexoctedral class. Stay tuned for next week's mineral, fluoropargosite. <laughs> 
All right. <laughs> Thanks for being a sport and playing along with yeah. us, Angela. <laughs> la, 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 la. Okay, where are we at? We are at Estuary. So um, I guess we can talk a little bit about the mixing in Estuaries. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. So when we think, we can basically break it down into, so we talked earlier when we did kind of give that definition of what an estuary is we talked about the interactions right so we had the salinity we had the temperature right so this is going to really affect the way that the the, the you have these interfaces in mm-hmm. here so uh, it's, it's basically broken like we can think of it as vertically mixed slightly stratified highly stratified and then we kind of have like this salt wedge if we will so a vertically mixed that's going to be considered well mixed it's shallow low volume where the net flow always proceeds from the head of the estuary towards its mouth so Salinity at any point in the estuary is uniform from surface to bottom because the river water mixes evenly with the ocean water at all depths. Salinity simply increases from the head of the mouth of the estuary and the salinity lines curve at the edge because of the Coriolis effect. So this is really going to be what the the shallow. So this is going to be in the what type of estuary? I'm asking you. (laughs) I thought it would be. Oh, yeah, the vertically mixed. It's going to probably have moderate depth really going to depend on the wave activity though so yeah. you could have something that's moderately depth but if you don't have any wave activity you're not going to mix so i'll be usually moderate moderately depth okay. and yeah, then fine. the 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 other type so we have the slightly stratified or a partially mixed estuary so i guess in somewhat deep estuary in which salinity increases from the head to the mouth at any depth as in vertically mixed estuaries however this is where we see the two layers can be identified. So one is less saline, less dense upper water from the river. And then the the other is a more saline, more dense, deeper water from the ocean. And these 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 layers are separated by a zone of mixing. So we start to get to see this circulation that develops in slightly stratified estuaries and a net surface flow of low salinity water towards the ocean. And a new subsurface flow of seawater towards the head of the estuary is called an estuarine. So it's kind of like this, uh, I guess, circulation pattern pattern that, that we I kind of talked about at the beginning. I don't know if we talked about it, but the estuarine kind of like the cycle, right? So you have the fresh water on top and then the, yeah. the salt water below. Yeah. So the, the fjord estuaries, they're going to be highly stratified. And so, yeah, so it's where the upper layer salinity increases from the head to the mouth, reaching a value close to that of the open ocean water. The deep water layer has a rather uniform open ocean salinity at any depth throughout the length of the estuary. Estuin circulation pattern is well developed in this one, and mixing at the interface of the upper water and the lower water creates a net movement from deep water mass into the upper water. Less saline surface water simply moves from the head towards the mouth of the estuary and it grows more saline as the water from the deep mixes with it. It has relatively strong halocline's between at the contact between the upper and lower water masses. That, that yeah. makes sense. And then the last one, salt wedge. Interesting. So, uh, you know, a good example of that one would be the Columbia River that's dumping in Pacific. There's such a, a large, robust drainage into the Pacific that that fresh water from the Columbia River just kind of glides over the Pacific Ocean and that bottom salty area kind of acts as a wedge. Yeah. So the bottom water is salty, but it, well, it's wedge shaped. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like a, one of those door jams, right? That hold the door open. <laughs> So you get this, this one wedge of fresh water going over over another wedge of, of salt water that originates from the Pacific. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no. So like, and then why I bring this up. So I'm going to go off on a little tangent here is it's, it, it's good to know how this, this water is going to interact with each other. Right. So if we could take a, like a real world, exa- real world example, right. So if a contaminated is introduced into an estuary, like one thing we would like to know is how long will it take to remove? Right. So uh, we can start using this chemistry, if you will. So there's this whole science behind the time it takes to exchange the contaminated water with uncontaminated water, water, either way, river water or seawater from the open ocean. And this is known as flushing times. Have y'all heard anything much about flushing times? Not in this sense. Like we think about that even in like acid mine drainage kind of thing. Like how long does it take to dilute (laughs) that? So I figured it's similar. Yeah. So if we make this uh, relatable, so pretend there's a like a metal contaminant in the estuary. And for the sake of the argument, let's say it's uniformly distributed throughout the layer of interest. So first we can, there's a case where the, it's is a well-developed surface layer and water is only added by river runoff. And in this case, flushing time is just going to equal the volume of the surface layer divided by the rate of the water of this layer. And then not, I'm going to spare you all that one, but we can see that in any case that they're in the aforementioned, there's not really any, uh, we're assuming there's no mixing between the contaminated waters and the addition of clean water. So that's the cu- calculated flushing times represent the minimum amount of time it'll take. But as anything, I'm just going to make it real complicated and introduce like all of it. And I wrote this out. Okay. All right. Da, 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 da. If we wanted to get super nerdy about it and add some maths into it, a more realistic flushing time equations would involve mixing between layers and accounting for tidal cycles would be something silly like the contaminant sea remaining in tidal estuaries after T tidal cycles would equal volume of surface water times one minus the surface flow divided by the volume of the surface <laughs> layer raised to the power of the number of tidal cycles plus number of the tidal cycles times the mean exchange exchange ratio within the estuarine system divided by one minus the mean exchange ratio (laughs) multiplied by the volume of the deep layer times one minus the mean exchange ratio of estuarine systems raised to the number of tidal cycles. (laughs) So basically, this is where she carries you across the proverbial threshold and opens the door for you on dates. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Did that make any sense to you, Angela? It, but that's a mouthful. Oh, yeah. So just to, I know, like, we're just kind of glossing over it and just all over the place, but there there really is, like, a science behind how we can, I guess, have a real-world applicability to it, which brings us into, like, I guess, lastly, the human impacts of conserving estuaries. Yeah. I'm going to listen to it because when humans impact these estuaries are very important. We have to know what kind of damage may be done. So that equation is handy, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, so like, uh, and it's really good to know, like, that we do impact estuaries, like, I guess, greater probably than anything. And the immediate one that comes to mind is paving over them, right? In these coastal plains, yeah. that's a big one. We've talked about it earlier. These are prime locations for real estate or to change the land in, in the ways that we want, whether that's for flood control or farming or whatever. But that's going to impact sediment flow. It's going to impact what species can thrive there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know, like, there's we are causing some species to be endangered just by this action alone. Yeah. And really the estuaries, and, and as I mentioned, when we, we think of estuaries, often we think of wetlands because wetlands are, are associated with many estuaries. That really is nature's filtration system. It so really is. Yeah. That we pave over it or develop it. We are ruining that filter system that was in place. And so that changes the dynamics 
of estuary itself, whether it's plant life or wildlife, those dynamics will change. No, and I and yeah, like the the especially like what the mangroves. That's like one of the most endangered ecosystems, right? And out of all of all kind of like the different regions, is am, am I am I crazy to think that? I think it really like they're being depleted at some crazy silly rate. Yeah, yeah, but you know, one thing that is kind of interesting about mangroves, for for better or worse, is mangroves really need warm water. So they have been regulated mostly to more tropical regions, but with climate change and the warming of not only the atmosphere, but the ocean waters, mangroves have actually made it all the way up to Florida, which shouldn't naturally be there. They just kind of go with how climate change is also influencing that. But that is a good point. I mean, as the quality of water changes and these buffering systems that are naturally there with their estuaries are changing, we are seeing, you know, changes in the biology, not only, again, with the plants. So we're losing some plants and other plants are going where they shouldn't be. Yeah. Throw that out there. That's another huge, huge problem. So, I mean, yeah, it's kind of hard to picture estuaries when we talk about like all these different kind of environments because right uh the the interesting thing is like the estuaries too they're they're not like this uh stagnant thing it's not like if this is where the estuary is is where it's always going to be right so like they eventually due to all that sediment coming in right don't they like kind of evolve into deltas in some cases like kind of we see yeah like i would assume like in periods of real rainy seasons or like just flooding over periods of time then we can see that in geologic record a delta progradation yeah so i would imagine that yeah it would due to the sedimentation you would you just lose an estuary or does it get pushed out further no because like eventually because like right so if we think of what 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 i imagine it is like the chesapeake bay right so you it's 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 a drowned river valley so this is the the chesapeake bay right so eventually i I feel like adventure i mean that's a really deep one though but it could eventually fill up with sediment and then it would no longer be then it would just dump it out onto the offshore but what i think with all of that too is the until it gets there like you do have all of this runoff from the river that or from the freshwater sources that goes into it and then so you have agriculture with all the fertilization upstream that you don't really think about going into the estuary <laughs> downstream yeah and then what do we know when you add a whole bunch of fertilizer into those type of environments you get like the eutrophication right, right? and Real, then it, the nitrates like just bloom like it's in the phosphate green <laughs> and then isn't it even in the chesapeake bay where there's cer- certain areas at the time where it becomes like super anoxic conditions due mm-hmm. to all of uh all of that i don't know if that's due to the depth or is it due to the the i don't know uh, the algal blooms that died off probably algal i would assume in like also so you you'll have sulfides can then change into sulfates at uh, certain levels like when you don't have light it's it's a weird interaction yeah but those yeah. will start accumulating and so then you're robbing the bulk oxygen because you're needing four oxygen versus just two uh-huh. and so that even that transformation can cause anoxic conditions well and that brings a different kind of microbial community with it as well right. and, and eliminate others. So, you know, in, in Chesapeake Bay, as you mentioned, in the summertime, it, it is the anoxic conditions it, pretty much every summer now that that is set up. And, and oh. I know that they are working on trying to reduce 
set time or reduce the area covered by anoxia, but it has definitely changed that day for the worst. And it, it is mostly brought on by pollution caused by humans, whether it's sewage sludge or fertilizers. And of course, Mississippi River, it, it, you know, that feeds, every river that feeds farming country feeds <laughs> into Mississippi and dumps yeah. the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. So we have a huge dead zone that sits up there because of that eutrophication uh, phenomenon that occurs because of the too, too much nitrites and phosphate. And you, you mentioned the, the sulfate, the sulfide huge because that yeah. changes the microbial community. My my research when I was working on my PhD, I, I studied the Permian Triassic extinction. And with the technology, one thing that was fascinating that I didn't really get a chance to get into as much as I wanted to, because I'm not really a biologist, but they were actually showing evidence of purple sulfur-eating bacteria present in the ocean. It was locked up in the fossil record. Mm. So that's, it's very, they're very unique on how they get their energy. So they're processing. They can only survive when there is absolutely no oxygen. So that was one thing that was leading towards uh, how large of a noxic area the ocean had gotten during that time. Now, is that um, is that the one where the like the kind of the the circulation kind of broke down and the it became super anoxic and then it started shoot like the byproduct was similar to like cyanide gas and then oh God. it started making its way to the land as well. Is that is that the one or is that another? Well, one of the hypotheses on that one. Honestly, we know some items that contributed to the Permian Triassic extinction, but the exact chain of events is still uncertain. So there is a hypothesis that the Tepe Sea, which is, oh, how do I explain it? It's kind of like the Sea of Japan, but much larger. So you yeah. have the Pasolata, which was a large ocean bigger than the Pacific. <laughs> I and mean, it, 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 it was the Proto-Pacific, right? I mean, the, the Pacific is just the remaining bits of the Panthalassa, isn't it? Well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. But what's left of the Tepes is probably somewhat locked up in the Mediterranean. So, uh-huh. But it used to be much larger. But it's kind of isolated like the Sea of Japan is. Now, that's one controversy or one hypothesis that I think more scientists are leading to. But there's a hypothesis out of there that the Tepes Sea became so toxic with, with gases that it basically belched. And that's what led to... Hmm a part of that extinction on land because the marine extinction was much larger than land, though both were devastating and we're getting kind of off subject. But yeah, I feel like, I feel like that's relevant because yeah. we don't like with the, with the warming of the planet as it is like, right. We don't know all of the intended, like the unintended consequences. Like right, ha- what happens if we mess up that the ocean circulation? Like what are the implications of that? So it's just, it's all, all of the things that people don't really like take into consideration. So like, oh, they don't even believe that the it's man-made. So I, I will tell you this, like, so after the, the snowstorm that happened, right, uh, I joined yeah. a, a, like, a, a Texas preppers page, like, how to, you know, just, like, to store, like, to prepare better, because I felt like I was very underprepared when it came to that type of event. But what I yeah. wasn't prepared for joining a 
preppers Facebook page is that they aren't the most uh, trusting <laughs> oh, yeah. of science people. And this, this oh, no, they're not. No. <laughs> and then and it, it blew my mind in this one page. There was this one post, and they're like, "Can look look at all the earthquakes and volcanoes going off at this time? Like something's not right here." And I'm like, "Well, yeah. if you notice, like the, the, <laughs> they have been all the earthquakes and volcanoes are kind of uh, follow along the you know the active plate margins." And then you know a couple comments down, they're like, "Yeah, and I heard that one volcano spew." They wrote one volcano <laughs> spew put more CO2 in the atmosphere than all humans did in history, like human history, so much for man-made global warming. And I was like, I mean, like, I feel like there's a lot of things that <laughs> I can get away with. I, those, those are one of my triggers and I'm, yeah. <laughs> I can't not say something. So I, I, I went off on a little tangent, and I, but I, I at least gave them about 30 references in my argument. They can't yeah. say that like, oh, well, that's just, that's just one yeah. opinion. Yeah. I, 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 I thoughtfully crafted it. Anyways. Okay. Right, yeah. But unfortunately, most of them will never check your references no. because they, well, yeah. anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being very typical. But. Yeah, no, but but at least I, I, oh, it, I had to say something because I was like, Meh. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But all right. So um, some other things that I guess getting back to the, the, um, the human impact. Yeah, the human impact of estuary. <laughs> yeah. We'll go off on tangents. It's okay. <laughs> All right. Human impacts on James. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that it's uh, yeah. one volcano. Um, so, yeah. So we talked about that we have sedimentation is one thing, right? And so we right. will build up on these estuaries. That's one of them. But also when we have so much sedimentation that's happening out there these sediments are that's kind of like what provides nutrients like all the metals and everything that life needs but we go and dredge it out so that we can have <laughs> our boats that carry lots of supplies and everything else I and mean, transport materials we dredge a lot of those nutrients out just to make the water deep enough for this so that's really impacting the estuary ecosystem and it really prevents the natural buildup of sediment in the channels and harbors and causes sediment particles to flow into an estuary, making the waters mercury and unhealthy. Definitely. You know, uh, you know it, what, what is disturbing is we don't really know how much we've actually affected a lot of these because, well, we've had harbors for a long time. We've done dredging for a long time. Uh -huh. And it's kind of off-subject but on-subject. Were you aware that there is actually a very large coral reef at the mouth of the Amazon River? I think I want to say I heard something like that, but no. I don't know much about it to say, like, to be any kind of uh, authority. Yeah, it's actually really quite large, this coral reef that build in. It's some unusual corals because they can handle some of the sedimentary water. But with this dredging, the fact that we've, we've done it for years, we've done it for centuries, actually, to, you know, make things more convenient for us. How many of these? unusual life forms have we already destroyed it blows my mind and then just how like arrogant we are i mean like and i don't yeah. I, you know what i'm saying it's like we i feel like humans they just they're like this is my land and you don't you can't tell me <laughs> what to do with it i don't care like right so like the the bulldozing and paving so like over estuarine waterways like you were saying brian like yeah it, it's proving to be one of the most destructive activities for the the ecosystem itself so i know like 
with, you know, with our growing populations and coastal areas being hotspots for residents, like, right, what do they do? You have to, like, in order to accommodate these populations, like, estuaries and waterways are being paved over, like you are saying, causing just, just like, right. I don't care. Well, and, and so, like, we see that even in just city building, but what here, like, some of these aquatic plants, right, and stuff like that, that harbor life for other organisms, they can't move out of the way like the deer can, you know? So, like, they're just going to be gone. <laughs> yeah. And so we're, we're pushing life somewhere else just because we want it to. And that's the real evil, I think, behind it. And, and you know, you mentioned, again, the sediments. Just making the water more murky is, makes it very difficult for the organisms that are in that water. You know, you, you change the visual, you change the clarity, you, you change the cleanliness of the water, and you, you're affecting an entire ecosystem. And, and, and I think as humans, we tend to discount how much influence we, we do have. They're like, oh, well, it's just a little bit, and it will settle down for a while, but for the life of an organism, that can be a life or death situation sometimes. It doesn't take very much. Especially if the organism is not mobile, or you, right. you scare all the piggies out of hiding, and all of a sudden, they're now lunch for <laughs> yeah. It, and then it I think I, oh, like a little factor for us, but it's a big deal for the organisms that live in these areas. But then also, like you said, they're 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 nursing grounds. Like some of these are nursing grounds for a lot of fish mm. species. And then some people use the waters to do their fishing. Yeah, and they provide food for communities. But like what we don't just like what's going in. Like these fishes are ingesting these different types of chemicals, or they could be dying off, and you're affecting people's livelihood. You know, it, it messes up a whole. Not I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, yeah, you brought up the chemical thing. Like that makes me think of a point we want to talk about, like nutrient pollution yeah, um, and in toxics in the water. So in, in it also, anytime you pull something from an ecosystem, you affect it all. Right. So like if you are paving over stuff, you've possibly eliminated a species from that area, which another species depended on. But much like that, the food chain, when we have these like carcinogens and other like human manufactured chemicals that that's going to that'll go down into these estuaries and it just migrates up the food chains to things we actually really like to see like eagles yeah. <laughs> like that like eventually it's going to even get up to them and they've traced contaminants in their blood as well so it's just is that i think that's what they call biomagnification yeah yeah what? it's just it's it's really sad and we don't we don't think about that but all of your everything flows to the ocean like eventually, you know, and we um, sadly, a lot of these ecosystems, like the ones we're describing, pay for it. Yeah. So it just, I guess, it shit doesn't roll downhill. It just flows to the ocean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no. And then it's, it, yeah. So we're well, down from someone all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then let's see. Then we have the industrial pollution, right? So it's another yeah. threat facing estuary. So we have these toxic substances, including chemicals. Are oh, we just talked about that? Other danger is over harvesting, right? So right. that's referring to catching species like fish. I think oysters are a big one, crabs, faster than they can naturally replenish. And it's much like the 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 dredging it out, right? You just yeah. removing any one species can alter, like you said, the entire ecosystem. And then, for example, the oyster population of Chesapeake Bay was nearly wiped out due to the over-harvesting. And because oysters serve as water filters within the bay, other organisms were also put at risk due to these harmful pollutants, and they remained in the water. Yeah, you know, another good example, we used to hunt uh, seals, you know, seals for their fur. Uh, you know, we 
don't normally hear about seal hunting these days. They used to be very popular back in the day, right? Yeah. And we decimated the seals of the giant lion population. Well, their favorite food happens to be the urchin. So when we got mm. rid of the, the sea lion population, um, I said seals, I should say sea lion population, they weren't eating the urchins. Well, the urchins happen to like kelp, and the kelp forest is one of these things in, in the ocean that, well, it's a forest. So that means there's lots of different organisms that depend on that particular area. Well, you take away that, that high predator in an area, and it has repercussions. Um, yeah. Sharks is another example. Not that yeah. you find those in an estuary, usually, but <laughs> you find day sharks sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but if you take away the, the top predator, you're still influencing that whole setup because it kind of helps keep that system in check. So even though an oyster, you're like, oh, well, it's still just the water. Let's put something else in there or, or find another way. You're still influenced because the oyster, that's the main source of food for a lot of different organisms. Yeah. From cells to birds to other fish, even. Yeah. So, yeah. And then just reshaping that entire ecosystem, like, yeah. <laughs> Altering that relationship between the predator and prey, it, it usually is going to result in huge <laughs> environmental and economic loss. Like, yeah. And, and like yeah. the invasive species with the with the urchin right like that's like uh, uh, yeah it's you just don't really understand yeah so another really major influence would be reducing the freshwater inflow uh-huh. this is your special I this is what like you do You're, like, I, you were the devil in this I, mr hey Dan. i just monitor these things so that they're not all for nothing <laughs> if right? we're gonna screw it up damn it we're gonna make we're gonna, sure that we're gonna make sure it works <laughs> <laughs> But yes, we we dam up rivers so that we can have things like drinking water, hydroelectric power systems and that kind of thing. But one of the major things we do, other than disturbing inland species, yeah. <laughs> uh, trout comes to mind, um, but this stuff, we're damming up sediments and nutrients that don't make its way out to estuaries anymore. Yeah. And that's going to lead to an ongoing loss of habitat in the watersheds of many of our estuaries here and even in the U.S. But that's that's kind of the thing is like to what limit are we trying to better our lives or find better solutions rather than disturbing other habitats? Because there, there are st- like there's... A, a thing like people say, oh, there's no new dams being built. They're building new dams still. Yeah. This New Mexico comes to mind because that state like is kind of spotty on yeah. how much water is available. But right. but eventually, like you are you are disturbing a river and its tributaries and confluence that will eventually make it out to these diverse ecosystems. And if you're not allowing, like maybe they depend on. I I don't know. I I'm not a biologist either. But I was I'm just kind of thinking like each estuary would be different. I would think in flora and fauna, right? So if you dam up a specific river that has a certain mineral assemblage that'll have prevalence of certain cations, you may end up disturbing the nutrient population just by damming up that one specific river. I don't know how how true, I'm not really basing that on anything other than just some pseudo logic, but it makes sense to me. But I mean, I I think it's important that you're you're bringing that up and then just just talking about it like just all of these things like like when we talked about lithium like the unintended consequences like you right. know we're not saying like this is steadfast like oh all dance are bad no but i'm like <laughs> uh 
I, I like to think of the quote that uh, that Albert Einstein he 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 once said that we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we use same thinking we used when we created them. Wow. So yeah, exactly. Like, like we 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 are finding new ways, but this is something that shouldn't get lost in that shuffle. You know. Yeah, and then you know, as we like the whole idea of like is the the podcast too is to I guess raise people's I guess scientific I guess literacy and consciousness. Like, right. Just don't, I mean, that's basically, uh, that's, <laughs> that's what we've done Yeah. or hopefully we're doing. Dance with the sediment flow too. Another, another thing to consider is, is, if you know, it's not tugging at your heart that we're, we're messing up the ecosystems by cutting off the sedimentation, but you're also cutting off those coastal beaches. Everyone likes to visit in the <laughs> yeah. summertime because uh, with that, sediment not making it to the ocean in, in those estuaries, it's also not making it to the beaches. So yeah. most beaches in, in California and Florida included, they're having to move sand around and pay for sand to be put on those beaches <laughs> so they can keep it because that normal sediment flow is not coming in anymore. <laughs> yeah. Hey God, it's just... <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's, it, it blows my mind every time we get this, like it, I start, you know, I'm just, ah. estuary. We go from estuaries and like, yeah, to let's quit screwing up the world. <laughs> it's every time. I know, man. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what to say anymore, but, but I think that's, 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 I, we, that's probably a good place to. Yeah. 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 So, thank you again, Angela, for, for, taking the time with us sure my pleasure and then uh we'll probably employ your your services when we talk about the promo triassic extinction in a yeah. purple in a in a ah. future episode <laughs> <laughs> maybe by then you'll uh you'll look at magnetic reversals <laughs> leading up to it. i don't know ah, that's an interesting one too yeah 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 awesome. but yeah thank you we we always like picking your brain and your massive knowledge you library. make us <laughs> n- look a lot smarter than we may sound you do so good <laughs> i i Many thanks. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Well, then that is going to lead us into, so thank Angela Osen again. I think, I, I don't know if you can get annoyed by being thanked so much, but. But thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. And then. I think one day we need to do a, a live or live an, acoustic. A, a live acoustic version. <laughs> yeah. of that. Maybe that's what we'll do. Let's close that out with season. Let's we'll close it out this season. Yeah, we'll, right. we'll, do, we'll do a little. And we li- could do the the intro music. We could play that. Like that are always intro stuff. We could learn that. Oh, uh, I don't I don't know about that. <laughs> we can. I, we I'm do. sure we could. Okay. <laughs> all right. So this is going to continue off with our, or I guess our March Madness screamo mid two thousands bands, <laughs> like we did a few episodes ago. So this week's 
bands that we're going to, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? That they're going to be competing are from first to last, Sousen, Taking Back Sunday th- versus Thursday, Under Oath versus Paramore, and My Chemical Romance versus Anne Berlin. All right. So uh, in this quadrant, so our first battle tonight is going to be from first to last versus Sousen. <laughs> or Sousen. 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 Um, I'll go first. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to go with Sousen, like n- no contest. Yeah. In in and I think that the uh, their guitarist, like I, I saw this thing where they were showing how many guitar tracks. It's super intricate. Like they got their mixes down. Like everything sounds huge. Yeah. Um. And they actually are like what I call like a band that had longevity from first to last. It's like they're what is his name Sunny or something? I don't. I don't even. He went on to be Skrillex. Oh really? Yeah. And so like he just. Well, he found a niche that works for him. Yeah, I guess so. But Seosin, hands down. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, okay, so we have Seosin as the winner. Seosin. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Our next our next uh, battle is Taking Back Sunday versus Thursday. Now I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna go ahead and just say uh, Taking Back Sunday. I is there really any like I think out of this list there's like oh man I don't know but yeah Taking Back Sunday they yeah this was hard for me because I I really do love Thursday I like Friday more <laughs> Friday <laughs> Friday <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah I I would say Taking Back Sunday has a better catalog of music. I really like the the two singer dynamic. Oh yeah, Do, yeah. I don't, like it's. I it, don't know. It's it, they complement each other so much, and they, they sound similar, but they're different. Yeah, and, but like they're the cadence, and I I really they do it better that. than anyone else. I I, I would say that they're at the top of that game. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we're in agreement. Yeah, taking that's two times already. Back one may have been an easier one to do. All right. Um. Our next battle is going to be between Under Oath and Paramore. <laughs> now, I will give the merits of the lead singer of one band is hotter than the other. It's way hotter. But and they both had the same hair. Well, I guess. The same, same haircut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go with Under Oath. Under Oath by far. By far. Yeah. I, Although their new album is. Well, I don't think this is on the garbage. merits of like currents. Okay. It's good. back in the day. Okay. Right? Uh, Under Oath by far. I mean, I have an Under Oath tattoo. So. Yeah, and and a what? Don't you also have a, a circus? Uh, circus survive? Yeah, they, are they on here? We we did them last last I, time. I Brian. don't remember that. Yes. Oh, you're right. They did. We he, they beat a data. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a starting, starting line. line. That's right. Did you not listen to the episode I uploaded today? <laughs> no. No. No, I didn't. Okay. Well, under oath. Under oath. I also like the the scream and sing. Yeah, and I like that they like progressively got heavier as it went on. It was really, really nice. Okay, and then lastly, we have the merits of My Chemical Romance versus Anne Berlin. <laughs> now, if you speak wrong here, Brian, I'm going to slap you. I'm don't, going with don't, Anne Berlin. God, you motherfucker. <laughs> we're going to have to fucking... <laughs> ah! My Chemical Romance is just so emo. Like I, Emo's the, not dead. It's not, but I uh, oh I really God. liked Paper, Paper Thin Him by Anne Berlin was one of my favorite songs. Okay, but... Uh, are you uh, dude okay so like okay so i remember this was i, mean, I was like an adult i was like a 20 i was 23 and i waited in line it was like one of the only times i was i remember i was in del rio texas because <laughs> i was doing the uh the border mission with the the military and i waited at that little crappy mall outside like uh when the cds were still a thing and and there was like a line of teenagers like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i was like yes i'm here to get the album oh my and god and i got the the black parade and yeah like, I mean, uh, 
other than like that one song, but before that, like Helena and Helena's good ghost, ghost of, you. of you. That song is amazing. All of it's amazing. Um, I just Amber Lynn to me was like a band. I don't know. I'm gonna stick with that, and maybe just so we can have a coin flip. But you saw like the okay, like the the <laughs> clearly the best band out of like all of it. <laughs> oh, all right, hold on. I gotta go get a quarter real quick. Okay. Oh, sweet. But oh. I I would I would. If if Coheed is or not Coheed, see, I'm already mixing them up. Yeah, uh, no, Coheed was out. We had to we had to do yeah. Coheed versus Chodos. Okay, okay, I'll give it to you. I'll give it. Okay, Heads is since it's on top. <laughs> Heads is my Kim and Amberlynn is going to be Tails. Brian, if you would do the honors, you can just uh, Heads. Hell yeah, that, right. that's right. Well, so I'm I'm curious. You say that uh, My Chemical Romance is possibly the best band. Out of the, our whole list. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Out of this, out of this side. All right, because just looking at, I, I'm, uh, I guess everyone doesn't know what we're doing yet, so maybe I shouldn't bring it up. But it doesn't matter. That bottom left looks pretty hefty. No, I know, I know. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't. Out of this whole thing, yeah. Like out of out of the out of the popularity and the rise to fame, out of all of those bands, My Chemical Romance was by far the they did it best. I feel like when people think of uh, screamo emo, that's the band they think. I of. I think when they think of emo, not screamo. Yeah, maybe there's not really screams. I guess there's not really. And, is there? and some of their songs, like the the guitar riffs, are just like. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, that concludes it. So this week, the second quadrant, we have Sousen, Taking Back Sunday, Under Oath, and My Chemical Romance. Oof. Oof. The, yeah. So <laughs> four more quadrants to go. And then I guess the, I meant two more quadrants to go. Then I yeah. guess we can, we can do, let's do two quadrants next time. So then we can do like the. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause so we have one more episode, right? And we're going to do Lagoons, Deltas. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Then we have reefs, reefs. with Dr. Greta Bowling. And yep. then we're going to do the curious questions from the inquisitive listeners again. Right. With that, that's been another episode. Thank you for listening to us um, and sticking with us the entire time. I'm your host, James, the geologist. And I'm Brian Baggins. And we would like you to remember to be cool. Stay tuned. And keep, keep it, it on, on the, the rocks. rocks. Hell yeah. Sorry, you did that through the whole episode. I was like, you remember at one point I was like, bitch. After that, I was like, oh. <laughs> Man, I don't know how we talk so long every single time. Well, in this way, anything.